Hey, good to see you awakening. How are you? Really? <laughs> could have fooled me. <laughs> oh man, it is good to be with you. Uh, I love this series that we started. I don't know, how many of you were with us Easter? Anybody? A few of you? I know we met in the morning, kind of messed you all up, huh? And I know a lot of you have been away or whatnot on spring bake and all those other fun things. Um, you know what, if I sit all the way back here, I can't see the notes. There we go. But last week we started a series called Curious, engaging some of life's toughest questions. I shared a little bit about my journey in that, and really a little over 10 years ago, uh, really the foundation of my faith began to crack and crumble. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, in fact, the son of a pastor, and went to school uh, to become a pastor. In the process, after just having gotten married to this beautiful, lovely woman named Jenny, I had a deep crisis of faith. One in where the fabric of everything I believed in began to be just torn apart. I wrestled with all the questions that maybe I should have wrestled with before I went into uh, studying to be a, a pastor. But is there really a God? And what kind of God is he? What about this man, Jesus? Was he really the son of God? Did he do what he claimed he'd do? And during that season, as I wrestled, I met a man at a, uh, at a local coffee shop in downtown Chicago. He was an older guy in his maybe his 70s, and he was an artist, and he just had this kind of cool vibe to him, and wore the cool artist hats, you know, and showed up, and, yeah, you know, it's just, we struck up a friendship because I was studying all the time. Introduced me to a book that he read that just come out, it was 2003, it was a book called The Da Vinci Code, and so I began to wrestle with this, this question about uh, the Bible, because for, for me, and maybe for you as well, as I was wrestling with one real fundamental question, did God really write a book? I mean, come on, let's be honest. Sounds silly. Sounds crazy. Did he actually really write a book? And I read The Da Vinci Code and thought it was a fantastic novel. Dan Brown's an incredible writer. But some of the things he said began to go, huh, have I always just accepted things? And I began to do my own research. Because for me, one of the biggest questions I could answer, especially for where I was going to land, was if God actually wrote a book, if God actually spoke, has God spoken? And if he did, then it changes everything. This book is no longer like an ancient writing of stories, but it is actually the very words of God. It, they shouldn't be just taken as nice ideas that were written long ago, but it should be taken as something you should base your life on because God wrote a book. And so I began to wrestle and asked that question and began to do a lot of research. Because what I realized is anytime anyone poked at my faith, it, it set off all these alarms inside of me because I didn't have answers because I really had what maybe some of you have. It's an untested faith. A faith that didn't have the foundation behind it and it just was accepted what others had said. So when anyone else said anything contrary, all of a sudden I was like, oh, I don't know. In fact, uh, as we ask questions about this Curious series, this 
question in different modes came up about the Bible and reliability and all these other questions you had. And so we thought we'd take the evening tonight and just ask and answer this question. Did God really write a book? You know, in the Bible, it makes some pretty big claims as well. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture, all of this, is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped. It says that God literally, with man, worked with man to write a book, and as man in his, you know, current culture and personality and all these sort of things, God said, I'm going to breathe life into it so it is actually my living word. In fact, Peter said it this way. He, he was talking about the prophets, and as they were writing, he said they were literally carried along by the Holy Spirit. In fact, you'll find 3,000 other uh, allusions to how divine this book is in the Bible. But I think for some of us, we would say, well, okay, just because it says it doesn't mean it really is God's word. I mean, don't you have to throw your brains in the trash to really believe that kind of stuff? I mean, come on. In fact, when I was wrestling, and I, you know, you really struggling during that time and searching, I was afraid to question because I was. I was afraid to find the answers. I was afraid to find out what I might find. I'll just give you a peek at the end that I came to the the strong conviction, the strong conviction that I had a God big enough for any question I had for him. Came to the strong conviction that all truth is God's truth, that this book contains his truth, but in fact there's so many things outside of here that is his world and his creation that reveals who he is that I could study and research and dive into that and it would just simply point me back to God. I didn't have to be afraid and stick my head in a hole as I think so many Christians have done and done great harm to the Christian faith because you go, no, 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 I'm not believing it and go, hang on. God has called us to love him with all our minds. To love him with all our minds says, you know what? Let's intellectually look at and ask the question, did God actually write a book? Because there should be some evidences that point us back that this is actually his word and not just an old word, right? This means yes, this means no. Okay. Let me give you five reasons why I believe God wrote a book. Five reasons that as I've studied through the course of my life that I wrestled with, these are questions that I was asking that many of you have asked. Why I believe this book is not just a good book, not just a nice book, not just filled with great stories, but literally is his God-breathed, inspired word to you and I. And that, that I literally, from that day forward, as I move forward, I said, I am going to base my entire life on this and my afterlife. That's why it's such an important question to answer. It's not just like, oh, these are nice sayings, and you know what, I'll take this because I like it or I don't like that, so I'm not going to take that. It's like, well, if it's God's word, then you go, okay, you're God. And this is authoritative for my life. I'm going to begin to treat this because, I mean, think about this. God wrote a book, so I should probably check out his book. (laughs) It just makes sense if God wrote a book, right? 
and he wanted to say something to me, and he wants to speak to me through his word. So let's look at it. Would you get your notes out? And if you don't have notes, just raise your hand and somebody will, will hand you notes because tonight is intensely note-driven. And we're going to spend some time at the end for a little bit of Q&A. And I'll just give a caveat. There's three up here in the front. So uh, Tony and whoever in the back, six. There's a lot of hands up. So um, I'll try to stall until you get... Uh, we're going to do a Q&A at the end. Now, here's my, here's my disclaimer. I don't know everything. And there's going to be times you're going to ask a question. I'm going to go, that's a great question. I don't know. There's times I'll ask Tony or Jay. I'm like, guys, do you know? But I think that's the honesty and community as we discover and search as a community and really look at it and go, hey, let's, let's go. When we don't know the answer, say, I don't know, but I'll look it up. I'll get back with you. It is way better to do that than to make up some cockeyed answer and, and just look silly. So that's, that's my commitment to you. All right, you're ready. Now that I, I tried to stall long enough that you could get notes. Five reasons why I believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. Reason number one is, is the manuscript evidence that we have. You know, two questions that come up uh, when we're talking about this is, how do I know I have the original Bible? How do I know this is like the real authentic Bible? How do I know it hasn't changed over the centuries? And how do I know, you know, as Dan Brown reported, you know, a little over 10 years ago, that, that this was, you know, not just a manufacturer of uh, a powerful empire to enforce its way. Well, you know what? If it is actually God's word, then he would have taken meticulous care on seeing it handed down through the centuries. Wouldn't you think? I mean, just that's the way, if I was God, the way I'd do it. Well, take a look at this. Uh, We're going to talk about manuscripts. Let me give you a quick little definition for that. James McDowell says this, the word manuscript is used to describe the ancient document upon which scripture was written first copied. So when we're talking about manuscripts, we're talking about just different copies in, in long, long, long time ago. Now, we have multiple manuscripts. We have manuscripts from, uh, you know, historians in the ancient world of antiquity. We have, uh, you know, stories that were written long ago. In fact, if you just look at the sheer amount of manuscripts that we have uh, of, historic, of the historic nature in, in antiquity, you just look at this. Pliny wrote, we actually have seven copies of his writings. Now, we know he was a literal person, and we take that he actually wrote this, but we only have seven copies of it. Caesar, we have ten. Tacitus, we have 20. Plato, 7. Herodotus, don't even know because I didn't fill that part in my notes. It was so small. (laughs) Demosthenes, we have 200. And Homer, 643. Now, the number of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament alone, 5,700 original Greek manuscripts. Now, if you expand that out and take just not just the original Greek manuscripts, but you expand it out to Latin, which was the common language then of Rome, you have another 10,000 manuscripts. You expand that out just a little bit more because the gospel began to go to Egypt and translate it into Syriac and and the Coptic language, and and you all of a sudden have 25,000 manuscripts. There, There is a preponderance of information here. 
Now, here's what I find interesting. Not only do we have a lot of manuscripts, we have a lot of early manuscripts. Because the question is, okay, well, if I have a lot of manuscripts, but if it's like three or four hundred years after the writing, well, come on. I mean, so much could change. It could be, it could have changed so far. And I mean, isn't that the deal? Didn't it, didn't, you know, uh, uh, at the Council of Nicaea, they, they changed everything there and made Jesus divine. Well, no, not actually. If you look at this, just look at Pliny. Uh, we have his writings, and the closest uh, manuscript that we have of his to when he actually wrote it is 750 years after he wrote it. But interesting, nobody believes that was changed. Caesar, Tacitus, a thousand years. Herodotus, Demosthenes, yeah, didn't come close to that one, did I? 1,400 years. Homer, the, is the closest at 525 years. That when they originally wrote it to the time when we actually have a manuscript is 525 years after. Now take this. The New Testament, we have manuscripts that are 25 years after. From the original writing to when we have our first manuscript. Now we'll talk about this in just a second, but then we also have the Dead Sea Scrolls. And that opened up a whole new world, and we'll explain that in a little bit but what's interesting is then in the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is part of the Gospel of Mark, and that would be dated within the first year or two of when it was originally written in about A.D. 65, about 20 years after Christ. I mean, wouldn't you think that if God wrote a book, he would take meticulous care to make sure that we had enough evidence to show that he actually wrote a book? Now, with manuscripts, there's another idea in manuscripts, and I, my notes are a little bit out of order. Let me get it back. And it's this idea of transmission. Transmission is the process of preserving or reproducing manuscripts. And so that's the question is, well, how are they protected? How do, how do we know it hasn't been changed? First of all, is this idea of how they copied these manuscripts. They were meticulous in copying. In fact, the Old Testament, the, the Jewish um, copyists would do this. They would literally take a ceremonial bath, dress in traditional Jewish garb, and sit down with a new pen and start. And in fact, they counted every single letter. So it wasn't just like writing. They would have a number, and they would count. One, two, three, four. Okay. And they would count all the way through. If they made an error, they would destroy the document and start over. They were meticulous. When they came to the name of Yahweh, they would go through the whole process again, right, with a special pen, and they would redo a whole cleansing ceremony. They were meticulous to make sure that it was accurate. And then not only that, do we have the sheer number of manuscripts. Here's what's amazing. So is if... If we had actually the original, just these are the original manuscripts, and one person owned them, don't you think it would be a whole lot easier to kind of make up your own story and change it? What's amazing is we have thousands of manuscripts, and what you get to do is something called textual comparison, where you get to look at this one, and this one, and this one, and this one side by side, and you get to say, oh, you know what? It looks like about this one's 300 years later, it looks like they tried to smooth this out, this text here, the earlier writing. That, that appears to be the, the original manuscript. 
And the sheer number of manuscripts points to we're able to do a process where you can actually say, you know what, we know with certainty that we have the original manuscripts. Incredible. Now, the second thing is, or third thing, is then the time gap between the originals and the copies. There wasn't this long time gap. And then they have the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I talked about, but what's so important, and you take especially the Hebrew literature there, and we'll talk about this in a few minutes with the prophecies, but what it did was it took, especially the Hebrew scriptures, where it looked like a lot of the prophecies were something that you could say, you know what, they were so accurate and they're so specific. Clearly someone went back and wrote all this in. And then the Dead Sea Scrolls was this, and I remember being in, in, uh, in Israel and having the guide explain this, that this I, like shepherd kid was walking through this valley on the West Bank, and he's throwing rocks up into caves above him, you know, this little... Uh, rocky area, and he throws a rock, and he hears this, like, clay break. He goes up, and he finds one of the more historic finds of the last century, and it's caves and caves of ancient manuscripts that took the dating back, especially for the Hebrew scriptures, over a thousand years from what we had, so that when you looked at the book of Daniel, because the book of Daniel was part of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the book of Isaiah that had these specific prophecies, it was, you know what? Huh. This was actually written before. There wasn't any foreknowledge. There wasn't any living history and then writing them back in. See, the first reason why I believe in the Bible as the Word of God is simply the sheer manuscript evidence that we have. The second reason is, is the reason of archaeology. How do I know it's historically accurate? How do I know it's real? And that's actually one of the questions when you're doing an examination of ancient texts, uh, of whether it's a real text or not, is, is you look back, is it authentic to the time period of the day? Are they talking? Because if you're writing hundreds of years later, you're writing in things that are untrue. You just can't help it because you didn't know the culture. And because of archaeology, we discovered what is it like in 20 AD and understand more of the time and what happened in 70 BC. And the archaeology overwhelmingly continues to point back to the historicity, yeah, that's the word, of the Bible. Let me just give you three examples where archaeology has validated the historicity of the Bible. That is historically accurate. Now, these are three ones, and there's many. There's actually hundreds and hundreds of these. But these are three ones where people would point back and go, hey, see this right here? You know this? It disproves the Bible because guess what? And this is the first one. There, we don't find any evidence of the Hittites. It's written in the Old Testament. It talks about this nation, this tribe called the Hittites. We don't see it anywhere. Well, for years the people group seemed to be a biblical fabrication. Fabrication. Recent archaeological digs have found hundreds of reference, references to the Hittite people. Interesting. Now, Daniel, some scholars question his accuracy. Daniel's writing in Daniel chapter 5, he calls Belshazzar the king of Babylon. Now, if you're writing back into history, that's an easy mistake to make. You might hear a name, and so if you write it post, but when you're writing in the middle, you're going, well, hang on. It doesn't seem like Belshazzar is the king. It actually seems like uh, what historically a king Nobidius, and as king, as king, we're looking, all we see of him, well, archaeology finds that. 
that while he was away on campaign, he entrusted his son with the kingship, Belshazzar, during the time of Daniel. Interesting. Luke. Now, Dr. Luke, he was a historian. He was a doctor. And overwhelming in his gospel that he writes about Jesus are are tons of dates, tons of uh, places, tons of people and names. And so people pointed for years saying, you know what, scoffed at his reference to Lysanias as the tetriarch of Abilene because we couldn't find it anywhere. Recent archaeologists found two Greek inscriptions that proved that Lysanias was indeed the tetriarch of Abilene. In fact, archaeologist William F. Albright would say this, there can be no doubt that archaeology has confirmed and substantially uh, the substantial historicity of the Old Testament traditions. Archaeologist Nelson Gluck said, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. See, the first reason why I believe the Bible is the Word of God is the overwhelming manuscript evidence that has preserved it as... His word. The second is the archaeological evidence that I see. The third is continuity. Third reason I see why I believe the Bible is the word of God is just simply the continuity of the Bible. It's a question that gets brought up, especially, I think, in the university sector. I think a few of you there. Isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Now just think about this. So oftentimes we think of the Bible as just one book, but if you think of it, it's really a library of 66 books. And out of these 66 books, think about the timeline. It was written over 1,500-year span, from Genesis to Revelation, 1,500 years. Then you think about the authorship. There's more than 40 different authors in the Bible. Over that 1,500-year span, 40 different authors, and they're all stages of life, some kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, you know. I'm not a scholar. Timeline, authorship, then language. Think about this, because we read it in the English, but it was written in three different languages. It was written in Hebrew. There's parts that are written in Aramaic and others in Greek. Content includes tons of controversial topics, and yet the biblical author spoke with harmony and continuity all the way through from Genesis to to Revelation. Here's what I find amazing is over that 1500 span it is one unfolding story. It tells the one story of God's love for you and for I and how he would go to whatever lengths to be with his people to the climax in the Gospels of the Cross which we celebrated the resurrection last Sunday and the candor. I don't know if you ever thought about this but isn't it remarkably amazing or the honesty of of the authors just think about this if you're going to write something about yourself and especially historic you're going to you're going to really want to make the high points high and gloss over the low points and almost all of the heroes in the biblical text we see the ugly side i mean just think about david (laughs) Should have left the Bathsheba part out. Man, you're a good guy. We're all rooting for you. But now we're like, slept with another man's wife and then had that guy killed. That doesn't look so good. Right? Think about Moses. Well, I mean, 
He tried intervening and saving some of his people. In the process, he killed an Egyptian murderer. Not so good. You think about Paul and his life before Christ and how he murdered Christians and threw them in jail. You think of Peter and how he denied Jesus over, well, three times. Isn't it amazing, the candor? You see remarkable continuity and unity throughout all 66 books. I thought because these questions get brought up and when you have these questions, especially whether it's friends or in the university environment, we we don't think maybe um, systematically about it. We, We get caught up in the moment emotion and someone says something and becomes this dart and like, oh, I don't know. Because some people say, well, aren't there all kinds of contradictions? Actually, no. No, there's not. In fact, there, there's a few that some try to point to and you go, well, that's not a very good case. Now, granted, there's hard things that I don't understand in the Bible. But it doesn't contradict itself. In fact, the contradiction in definition is simply this, is something that contains parts uh, or elements that are illogical or inconsistent with each other. They just don't work. It completely contradicts. It's polar opposites. It can't be the same, can't be true at the same time. I can't be 10 feet tall and 6 feet tall at the same time. Now, I can be 10 feet tall standing on a stage and 6 feet tall here, although I'm not really 6 feet tall, I just wanted to be right? Let me give you two real quick. These get brought up a bit. Some people point to the Genesis account, and it just shows that you haven't really read the Bible. In Genesis 1 and 2, you see these two different accounts of the creation. And Genesis 1 is this beautiful poem of God's creative work, and then Genesis 2 talks about his creative work with man. And go, well, aren't these contradictory? I mean, why is there two different accounts? And what's interesting, if you look at it, Genesis 1 really speaks of God's creative act. In fact, every time it speaks of God, it uses his uh, name Elohim, really emphasizing the creator God. And it is this broad picture of his activity in creation. Genesis 2 then zooms the lens in on his creation of mankind. It's interesting, the word that he uses for God changes from Elohim, creator God, to Yahweh. That was his personal covenant name with humanity. And it says, well, that's not a contradiction. It's just one is looking at the broad scope of what he did, and the other zooms in to see the specific act of creating a man. Other one that gets brought up is, well, how did Judas really die? You remember Judas Iscariot? I mean, he's the, he's the villain, if you will, of the Gospels. I mean, he betrayed Jesus with a kiss, and one account says that he hung himself, and another account says that he was found uh, with his intestines exploded on a rock, and go, well, which is it? Well, here's what's interesting to think about, is these are accounts written by different people, and as they write these accounts, They're not going to you going, okay, let's make sure we got everything fully in line, and yet they line up. Because what I'd say is if you just look at the Judas account, one describes what he was trying to do, hang himself. The other describes how he's found. In fact, the Bible says he was found 
with his intestines burned long. If you know where he actually hung himself is in the Valley of Hinnon. And the Valley of Hinnon has these huge, jagged, rocky cliffs, that, these pinnacles that come up 25 feet. Most likely what Judas did was he went to an edge, hung himself on a tree, hung there, swung there for a while, and eventually fell. And one account says this is what he tried to do, and the other says this is how he found him. Well, did it contradict? I, I don't think so. Now, now, this is my honest wrestling with it. But the reasons I believe the Bible is actually the Word of God, manuscript evidence, the archaeological evidence, the continuity, the fourth reason is this, is the prophecies. Because the question is, if it's really God's Word, aren't there signs that this is a supernatural book? I mean, if it really was inspired by the God of the universe, that he really breathed life into this, that this is his book, there should be signs that it was, had the spark of divine, if you will. And that's where I look to prophecies. Here's what's interesting about prophecies in the Bible. Prophecies in the Bible aren't these vague generalities, someday, one day, there's going to be an earthquake. They're specific and so that's an easy test case of like, okay, well, let's look at it. Did it really happen? Didn't it? That's where the Dead Sea Scrolls have been extremely helpful for us. One prophecy, the prophecy about Cyrus, the prophet Isaiah writing about 700 BC named Cyrus as the king who will say to Jerusalem that it shall be built up and that the walls and the temple shall be re- rebuilt. Isaiah was writing this while Jerusalem was already built while the temple was intact. What happened was about 100 years later, a guy named Nebuchadnezzar came by, took over Jerusalem, destroyed this temple, destroyed the city, took people captive. Then a guy, a a small nation called Persia, decided to take on Babylon, and they won. And there just so happened to be this king who was named, anybody guess? Cyrus. And guess what Cyrus did? He sent the people of God back to rebuild the city of God and the temple of God. Huh. And Isaiah prophesied that 160 years before it ever happened. Judgment of Tyre, Ezekiel says they're going to fall at the hands of the Babylonians. Succession of world empires, Daniel talks about specifically and accurately the details of different world empires that succeeded. And one that, I, that just gets me is the fulfillment of messianic prophecy by Jesus. And you see in the Old Testament that there are actually around 100 or 300 or so uh, messianic prophecies and just there are really 61 major prophecies. Let me just give you a few that the, the messianic prophet, that, that the Messiah would be from the line of David, the Messiah would be born of a virgin, he'd be born in Bethlehem, that, that there would be the killing of children, Herod would kill children, that there would be the betrayed friend sold for 30 pieces of silver, that he'd be crucified with thieves, garments be parted and lots cast, bones not broken, darkness over the land. The statistical probability of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies is one in the tenth to the seventeenth power. Just eight. Jesus fulfilled all of them. 
To give you a picture of just that statistical possibility of Jesus fulfilling eight, imagine this, if you will. If you took a silver dollar and made a mark on it, and then you covered the state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars. You put this, the mark silver dollar somewhere on the state of Texas, blindfolded someone, turned them around and said, find it. They have one chance. Grab. Huh. That's the, the statistical probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight, and he fulfilled all of them. See, why I believe in the Bible is there seems to be this supernatural reality where God spoke before and it came to be. And thankfully to the manuscript evidence and thankfully to the archaeological work, we can actually show that it wasn't just someone writing in later post the date, that we have manuscripts before these events happen and can say, look, this seems to be supernatural. Last reason why I believe the Bible is actually God's word is simply the impact it has had over the course of history. It is undeniable the influence and impact this book has had. I mean, we're, we have a best-selling, I guess if you could say, series going on in the History Channel right now, thousands of years later, about the Bible. Over two billion publications. You look at it and you say it's transformed countless lives regardless of culture, language, or the continent. It's withstood the test of time and intense scrutiny. See, the questions we ask today have been asked in years past and has withstood those tests. It's incredible to me to think how incredibly wise his word is. That something that was written thousands of years ago it can be so intensely practical for me today. That it, it, it has meaning for me now. In fact, the impact it's had is that it's changed my life. I'll just be honest. I love my kids and my family better because of God's word. That passage in Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. Then when you begin to renew your mind by his word, he will transform you from the inside out, and your life will be a demonstration of his will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And I gotta tell you, that has been my testimony as I've experienced that it is in what the author of Hebrews says, living and active, his word. So, what about you? Just by way of application, what about you? Let me give you maybe three possible applications. And I just encourage you as I read these, if you would just check the one that you're in, if you, if you would be so willing to do so. Maybe you're in this place where you'd say, I'm willing to examine the evidence to my honest questions about the Bible. Where, where you'd go, you know what? I've come in skeptic. I've come in questioning. But I, what I realize is I haven't done my research. I've just accepted what other people have said and what I've heard. And I'm willing to do the research. In fact, we'd love to give you a book on the back table back there, just more than a carpenter. It's just a thin little book, 
easy read, starts to dive into that. Maybe you're in this place. Are you willing to read the New Testament, make up your own mind concerning the Bible? Don't take other people's word for it. Would you get into, and if you need a Bible, we got those back there too. We'd love to give you a Bible. Uh, but where you'd go, hey, you know what? I'm just going to start reading the Bible. And, and is it, does it really have an impact? Is there something supernatural about it? I'm going to start reading it for myself. If you do and you've never done it, I just got to tell you, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell the story of Jesus. So it, it's a little bit on repeat, but it's great. It is, man. It just gives you Matthew's writing to a, a Jewish audience. And so you see that influence where he talks about Jesus as king. And, and then you see Mark, he's writing to a Roman audience. And so you'll, you'll, you'll see that he writes immediately all the time because Rome was all about action, you know. And so he writes immediately this, immediately that. And over and over, you're just like, okay, I feel like we're galloping on a horse, Mark. Thank you very much. And that's why it's the shortest book, too, of the Gospels. And then you see... Luke writing to the Greeks, and it addresses the concerns there, and John writing to the Gnostic or question askers. It hits it just a little bit differently, all deeply powerful. Would you be willing just to simply read the New Testament and test? And if you're here, and you'd say, you know, Ryan, I'm a Christ follower. I... I, I would say I, I believe this is God's word. W- would you do this? I'm committing to live my life based on biblical convictions rather than current culture. See, it is so easy to take this as good advice instead of God's word. See, good av- advice, we go, eh, that's nice. But if it really is, if it really is God's word, it changes how we approach it. If it really is God's word, then it means God wants to speak to you. How cool is that? I mean, come on. The God of the universe wrote a book. You should at least read it. And where do you say, you know what? I, I'm going to start taking you at your word. I'm going to start living for you. I'm going to say, you said love my neighbor. Okay. I don't even like my neighbor. (laughs) Okay. There's a way in which you said that we should work. And you said, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. And I don't like my work and I don't like my boss. But I'm not going to do my work in the way that it's like presenting to my boss. I'm going to say, you know what, my work, I'm going to do it as if I was presenting it to you, Jesus, because that's what you've called me to do. See, it changes your life. Now just imagine if we are a community of Christ followers, of people who said God wrote a book and we actually lived by the words that he wrote, what would change? How this city would change. And I know how your life would change. See, the impact it's had on my life has not been constraining, but it's been freeing. I care less about what people think now because I know what God thinks of me. My identity is secure in him. And I have to keep going back to his word because I pick that mantle back up and I get so concerned and worried. I'm like, what are you going to think about this talk? You know, that's the real insecure, Ryan. And it's like, God says, I love you. You're my son. 
cherished. It's powerful and effective, his word. Would you read it? It changes lives. Here's what I'd challenge you to do this week. Find two to three to four people and just meet for, the, for this whole series. We're going to be talking about big subjects. Would you just meet for the whole series once a week and just we're going to have discussion questions at the end. Would you just talk about them? Like what are the questions you're wrestling with? And what specifically would change in your life this week if you actually believed this was his word and lived like it? See, all of a sudden, now you begin to have a context for wrestling. You have a, have a cheering group for as you go out and you go, okay, but would you do that? Would you begin to meet together? You might already do it in a house church, and that's great, and you begin to ask these questions. You might not be a part of a house church or a small group community here, but you say, you know what, I'm going to grab two or three friends, and we're just going to grab coffee or a beer or wine. I don't care, water, whatever, <laughs> Diet Coke, <laughs> even Pepsi. Maybe not. (laughs) And just go, hey, can we talk? Let's talk about this. Because if it really is God's word, it deserves us coming and saying, God, we're going to live under your word.